Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4 is where we begin today. The first chapter of Genesis and the first few verses of this chapter 2 gives us the events of the creation week, God's creation of the heavens and the earth and the the forming and the filling thereof. Now starting at verse 4 in chapter 2, there is a bit of a retelling of the creation of man and woman in particular. It's a focused view now in chapter 2 of what was briefly referred to in chapter 1. It's not a second creation account. This is just a closer view of what was already mentioned, a close-up, if you will. As the only, creatures, uh, the only creatures created in God's image, human beings are given a special placement and purpose. And so these verses before us begin to tell what that placement and purpose is. So here as I read God's holy word, Genesis 2, 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is, is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, your word is a treasure. Your word is precious to us, and we are thankful to have access to it and to look at these verses in Genesis 2 as a church family this morning. Please guide our consideration of your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. May we understand what it says and how it informs our lives. Pray this through Christ. Amen. In studying Genesis, we are studying the foundations that God lays down for life in his universe. We are observing the generations that unfold from the time of his creation of the heavens and the earth. It would be difficult to get more practical than discovering our placement and our purpose as scripture puts it forth. Verse 4 of the passage before us 
sets up a new section of Genesis. It's a step back to look at the sixth day, in particular the creation of man and woman. And it's meant to now to start unfolding the generations. So let's consider a few preliminary points from this introductory verse, verse 4. Look there with me. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. One verse to capture the whole of the creation week, starting now with the creation of man at the very end of the sixth day. Now note a few things. The opening phrase, these are the generations of. This is a phrase that becomes the regular introduction to new chapters in Genesis. I don't mean the numbers that were put in after, but new subjects, new families that unfold a new story that tells us the message of Genesis. These are the generations of, and this is the first of these many uses of that phrase to set up a a special section. Second, notice something else, the name for God here now used by Moses. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. Uh, To this point, the whole of the first chapter, Moses has been using Elohim as the name for God, the, the plural of majesty, that majestic, sovereign, kingly name for God, Elohim, all through the first chapter. But now at verse 4, Moses tweaks that name a bit by adding Yahweh Elohim. It's not a different author. This is with the author now accenting something specific about Elohim. He's the covenant God. That's the personal covenantal name for God, for Israel and for us, Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. This becomes the dominant designation up until chapter 4, the next two chapters. Kent Hughes said, well, whenever we come across the title, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, like we have here, it signifies God, our creator, and our covenant redeemer. It's how utterly beautiful the Lord God is. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. We see here day is used to describe the whole now of the creation week. Foundations and generations. That's what we have in Genesis. There are the beginnings of so many different doctrines and teachings in Genesis. When we get to the end of chapter 3 of one sermon, just pausing and going back and looking at all the beginnings of these various doctrines and teachings that we have and are so important as the rest of the Bible unfolds. And we'll have some new ones here again today. Chapter, or verse 4 here, captures everything that's come before and now focuses in on the creation of man and woman. God displayed in this chapter, he displays the placement and the purpose for people when he established the Garden of Eden. Let's look at verses 4 through 7 first and recognize something very important for our understanding. The special distinct creation that is humankind. There's a description of the primordial earth, if you will, as uh, looking for man to be the tender or the vice region of God. Everything's done and ready and waiting, but notice uh, the untended nature of it. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Remember that the initial audience is Israel, who had been in Egypt. They were aware of the foliage and the vegetation that 
they had seen in their stage of life, but all of this had not yet come to full growth yet in the times of the early days before Adam and Eve were even formed. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. This is before the rain fell under the times of Noah. So there was a different way in which God uh, had devised or designed so that things would have water. It says in verse 6, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So God still designed for all the vegetation that he would cover the earth with to have its sustenance it met as water came up from springs. In fact, some you'll probably see in your ESV, uh, springs. Or, uh, there was water that came from springs up from the ground. There could have even been a bit of a mist or a canopy at that time. Things could have been very humid maybe swampy or marsh-like at this time. This is what we see pictured before man is placed there. But then we come to verse 7 in the actual formation or creation of man. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. There's a humble beginning. Mankind made from the dust from the ground. But we see what gives value to this creation is God forms the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I want you to notice that this is at the end of the sixth day. He's already created all, the, all animal life and all the creatures in the seas. Man is a distinct creation. He's not taken from other, not taken from animals and created, taken from the dust of the ground. Moses is being very careful to differentiate humankind from all other living creatures. We saw this in verse 27 of chapter 1, so we shouldn't be surprised when he focuses, focuses in on the creation of man that he would emphasize this again. Also, I don't know if you notice, we, Genesis is elevated prose. From time to time, there's a poetic verse, though. In 127, we have the most poetic to that point. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I think the second most poetic is in verse 7 of chapter 2, and it's about the same topic, the same subject. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This word form describes a very careful, particular, intentional process. God shaped the man of dust from the ground. God configured, God structured the man of dust from the ground. God fashioned the man of dust from the ground. God constructed the man of dust from the ground. God built, God molded. This conveys divine intentionality as a potter shaping a pot very carefully, taking something worthless like the dust from the ground and making it into something who bears the image of God. What a humbling picture to come from the dust of the ground, but yet what a glorious climax to this creation that God would make or form man and woman in his image. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You know, our flesh on its own, has no value apart from God forming us and breathing life into us. It's God's breathing into Adam's nostrils that grants him animation, that gives him life and ability to carry out God's purposes and activities. But what a humbling thing to come from dust. And we think, 
when we stand over the graves of those we love. From dust we've come, from dust we return. There's something humbling about that. What a magnificent worth, though, we have because God breathes life into us, informs us from the dust into His image. It was Calvin who was looking at this passage, and he said rather bluntly for him, he must be excessively stupid who does not hear and learn humility when we read that we come from the dust. Our value doesn't come from something intrinsic about our flesh, although it is amazing how God has constructed it. Our value comes from the God who fashioned us and breathed life into us. And as the body, soul we've been created into, there has uh, some way of bearing the image of God. God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils. This intimate picture, God himself breathing into man's nostrils to give us life. Distinct and special. Humans are revealed apart and above all creation in God's distinct and special creation at that. Now I want you to notice our placement and our purpose as it unfolds in the rest of the passage. Look at verse 8. You'll see what is revealed by the placement and purpose given to people. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So the sixth day, the earth is formed, and now he makes a special place, an identifiable place, an actual place, a garden in Eden. This is a locale now. And he put the man whom he had formed there. It's a distinguished area, and this is important. This is a real location. We know by the way Moses describes it. He no doubt uses some places that the people of Israel would have known. They probably still existed. Others wouldn't be exactly where they were. After there's a flood, there's going to be changes in some of the topography. So maybe not all of it's known exactly to Israel, but enough of it is to get the main point. Eden, the Garden of Eden, is in, an, in a spot. It's, it has a geographic location. It's not allegorical. It's not mythological. It was a specially, a specially prepared place for man to begin and then develop from, to start the work God had for him, to subdue and exercise dominion from that place. And it was a paradise-like place. It, it was an idyllic setting for the flourishing of mankind. It was a place of training. It was a place of sustenance. It was a place of testing as well. Look at verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In this designated area, prepared especially for mankind to begin, God springs up various plants and such for sustenance, and then you have the tree of life was there and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees further establishing with these landmarks that Eden is a real place and the garden in Eden is a real locale. Details are given about its location. Probably details that the initial audience, Israel, just delivered from Egypt. They know some of these places for sure. We know some of them says in verse 10, identifying where Eden is, it connects Eden to four known rivers. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The first one you see is Pishon. You see a second one, Gihon. Of course, the land of Cush would have been known, a known area to the Israelites. 
the third river, the Tigris, and of course the Euphrates. The, the purpose of this is to give Eden location. It's not just a, a fantasy land to tell a story. It's the true geographic place where actual historic Adam and Eve were placed. Adam first, as we see in this account. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, I read that slow on purpose because it's easy to read fast through this account. Maybe you've read it many times. But I think this is an important verse for everybody here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Here's the part, to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it is not a punishment. It is not because of the fall. To work it and keep it is part of the glorious state of paradise that God made man for. To work it and to keep it. Back to chapter 1. This was the purpose of mankind, to subdue the earth, to be stewards of the earth, to be trustees of creation. The glorious thing to be able to work, to be able to have some hand in the subduing of nature. Nature was huge. It was unwieldy to some degree, but not under the hand of man who had capacity to manage it to the glory of God. It's God's vice regents. This initial picture is truly paradise. Now, today we might say, oh, he had to work. He had to work. He got to work the earth that was created to display God's majesty. And God created man and woman in his image so that they could, with this special capacity they had, work it and bring it into some even more beautiful picture of God's handiwork. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work was a pre-fall activity. It's part of our calling and purpose. Everyone's calling a purpose. I don't mean just your vocation. I mean all the labors you do throughout the course of your days. Satisfaction comes from work. Fruit comes from work. Final paradise that we look forward to, paradise restored, We'll have work. We're not going to be laying around in in cloud-shaped recliners checking our fantasy football lineup while church is going on. None of that kind of stuff. Well, maybe we'll do, not not about football, soccer. We'll, We'll check our soccer lineups, I suppose, in heaven. Point is, it's not going to be leisure land. It's not going to be lazy land. It will be restored to some level of capacity to exercise the kind of work God designed us for. Work pre-fall was 100% productive in its original state. Adam was ready to conserve and to manage and to steward the garden as the first place that man was placed. God did not condemn human beings to work as a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. You know, it's interesting when you read Isaiah... Isaiah has lots of pictures of what will happen after Messiah comes in the new heavens and the new earth. Long before Jesus, Isaiah is already predicting what the fruits of Christ will bring in this new heavens and the new earth. And war is one of the worst aspects of fallen life. It's one of the most terrible things we know of that we constantly are confronted with. Many of you have been, uh, been affected by it in some fashion. So Isaiah looks to a day when there is no more war. But notice something he says. Someday nations will return to this paradise state They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, we know they get re- there's no need for the weapons of warfare, but guess what there will be need for? 
farming implements. It's simply saying that this is not a bad picture for the future, that we'll work, we'll be able to work in all the ways. It's one picture. It's the most earthy picture of work. But there's thousands, maybe millions of ways in which we work and we steward God's earth. This is what God's called us to. This is pre-fall. This is not something we should look at uh, negatively or as a downer. I understand there's toil that comes into our work today, but it will help you with that toil if you realize that at base, what you're called to, what you're engaging in, is God's calling for you in your daily labors. They do matter to God. God is a creator. He made you in his image. And so the things you do in the smallest level in your household to the biggest things you may be responsible for, they're all part of God's image in you showing creatorship, management, care, conservation, multiplication, helping people flourish, keeping things moving so people can be fed, can be clothed, can be sheltered, can enjoy aspects of God's beauty. Work has intrinsic value because it was ordained before the fall and will be part of life when the kingdom comes in fullness. Work isn't just something we do to get by or to finance our lifestyle. It's, it's not a necessary evil that will be done away at some point. Work is not what we just do so that we can enjoy our leisure. We have to see work for what it is. Granted, maybe the work you do now isn't exactly your favorite and there are you look forward to better forms of it, for sure. But recognize what you're doing, though, does matter right now. It matters because God says so, and he ordains it as such. It's interesting, as Pastor Nathan has been going through Ecclesiastes, one of the themes that keeps coming back is the concept of our toil and our labor. And see how Ecclesiastes shapes it. And this is, of course, Ecclesiastes written post-fall, when it's much harder to do work. The preacher says there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Later in Ecclesiastes, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I've had this talk with my kids over the years, and I remember my parents having it with me. Different form, but the same idea. And one of my sons had just gotten his job at the car wash. All my boys have gone through the car wash to work there. And I was trying to convince them of the theology of work, because I could tell they didn't like what they had to do. And one of them was describing to me something that I had to keep a straight face and keep my the theology straight. But he said, you know, Dad, people chew tobacco and they have a spit cup, right? And I said, yeah. Some of them just use the cup holder in the car for the spit cup, and I got to clean it up. My theology was strained at that moment, but I did say you are bringing order to the earth by cleaning that up. I mean, there's some level in which these jobs we have that are difficult. My wife and I met each other cleaning toilets at the historic Moody Church. That's the true story. So not only are we subduing the earth, we're on the road to being fruitful and multiplying as well. All your labors count. They may stink at the moment. You may not like them. They may be difficult. Maybe you're looking for something else. That's fine. But don't think what you're doing now does not matter. It's part of, yes, post-fall makes it much more difficult. It's tainted in some fashion. But think about it. And there's some of you who won't have jobs in the new heavens and new earth. Pastors won't. Doctors won't. Lawyers won't. But now you have an important role in mitigating the effects of the fall. They're still important. There's important foundations here for us in Genesis. 
that I hope help encourage you in your labors. R.C. Sproul captured this well. He said, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that work is a punishment that God gave us as a result of Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. We, we must remember that work was given before the fall. To be sure, our labor has added burdens attached to it. A mixture of thorns and thistles is found among the good plants we seek to cultivate. Our labor is accomplished by the sweat of our brow. These were the penalties of sinfulness. But work itself was part of the glorious privilege granted to men and women in creation. It is impossible to understand our own humanity without understanding the central importance of work. Remember when I was a teenager, I was delivering newspapers. I have to laugh when I say newspapers. I'm not sure how many people today even hold physical newspapers. Most of the young people probably haven't. But I used to deliver those, 100 of them every day. Rain or shine, had to deliver them. And one day I was driving by uh, a motel that I dropped papers off, and the Grateful Dead had just come the night before to play a concert. And all the people following them all over the country had poured out on this motel in the campsites behind it. And the lady didn't know what to do because it looked like it was wrecked behind there. And all I saw were a bunch of empty beer cans that were five cents a piece. And so I said, I will, I'll clean these up if I can keep the cans. So I got my dad's station wagon, and we drove through with the old Valari station wagon. It had more Bondo on it than it had metal on it, and we filled that thing up twice, and I got $255 worth of cans from the Grateful Dead concert. And as I thought over the years, how in a sense it's a bit of a picture of a lot of the work we'll do. It is cleaning up. It is ordering things. It's, it, but there's fruit that comes from it, and it multiplies, and it's a blessing from God that as we do these labors, there are returns for those labors, and there's benefits for those labors. And this starts in the garden. It starts in the garden in verse 15 of the passage where we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Finally, I want you to look at verse 16 and verse 17. It's a, it's a shift of subject, and that's kind of how it is in these early chapters, but I don't want you to miss 16 and 17. I'm not overstating it to tell you that what we have in these two verses essentially sets up a structure for the rest of the Bible. It's that important. And, and many Christians who aren't familiar with the flow of the biblical story, they know Bible verses, um, this becomes a very important foundational passage for you to understand. It introduces to us a concept known as covenant, and in particular, the covenant of works. And you'll see why this unfolds to the rest of the Scriptures. That's why I don't think I'm overstating to get you ready for what's happening in verse 16 and verse 17. Here we have God giving a prohibition at creation for man. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is the word of the Lord. It's a covenantal word. Now you say, pastor, it doesn't say covenant. How are you calling this a covenant? Good point. However, it doesn't have to label a covenant to see all the elements of a covenant. First of all, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant in antiquity was the highest form of contractual binding agreement you could have. So the people who first heard this story told, uh, well, there are multiple people heard it, but when it was written down by Moses, in that time frame, in the time of Moses, the idea of covenant had developed to be understood as the highest life-death binding contract you could possibly imagine between people initially. 
This is a covenant with God. It raises the stakes all the higher. But all the way for thousands of years up to the time of Moses, the idea of covenant was very clear to those who would have heard this terminology. They didn't even have to hear the term to know what made up a covenant, and that's what you have here. In antiquity, there would be at least four different components that would identify, we have a covenant. The first would be parties involved, obvious enough. There would be a promise, there would be conditions, and there would be a penalty if those conditions weren't met. And the the stakes would be very high. So we're alerted when we see all of this in these two verses. You have the parties, God and man. God covenanting with man here. And there's a promise made. The promise is of eternal life to Adam. If he meets a condition, and there's the condition. The condition is that of perfect obedience. In other words, Adam was temporarily put on probation in order to determine whether he would willingly subject his will to the will of God by way of obedience. That's the condition. Burkhoff said, well, the great question that had to be settled was whether man would obey God implicitly or follow the guidance of his own judgment. Would he do what he wants to do? That was to be determined by this covenant. Charles Hodge said that this specific command not to eat of a certain tree was not the only command given to Adam, but it was the outward and visible test to determine whether he was willing to obey God in all things. So we have a covenant with a penalty attached. The penalty for disobedience, you will surely die. And this means spiritual death, physical death, ultimate eternal death. Look at the covenant of works again, verse 16 and verse 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Van Dixhorn says, well, anytime one spots a sovereignly determined and administered arrangement between God and man with penalties and promises, you have a covenant. John Ball, who wrote a great treatise on the covenant of grace in the 17th century, he said God's covenant with man to give him eternal life upon condition of his perfect obedience is the covenant of works. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition, this is key, condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. And of course, our own Westminster Confession that we read today is our profession of faith. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. I think it's wholly proper to call this initial arrangement in verse 16 and verse 17 a covenant of works, an agreement based on obedience. It has all the components of a covenant. But on top of that, much later, during the ministry of Hosea, Hosea, speaking as the mouthpiece of God, said this, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's talking to the people of Israel who are disobeying. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. He characterizes Israel who had been violating God's commands to obey the same way Adam did, calling Adam's disobedience a breaking of a covenant. Should Adam have perfectly obeyed the terms of the covenant, God would have rewarded him with eternal life. Adam would not have just lived on as he was, but Adam would have been confirmed in righteousness and given eternal life. 
Here's a critical piece to understanding Genesis and the rest of the story of the Bible. The covenant of works has never ended. It still goes on. We're born in Adam. We're born under the covenant of works. We're born guilty of the covenant of works because of our father, Adam. The covenant of works is still the only way someone could be right with God. We are saved by works. Don't take that out of YouTube. And cut that piece out. Let me get to what I'm saying because I think you follow this. We're saved by works, but we don't have them. But God has to maintain his righteous standard and perfect obedience is required. So having failed the covenant of works, Adam is rendered dead. So it pleased God in his grace to make a second covenant. A covenant of grace, undeserved favor shown to those who deserve wrath. But how could God's righteous standard be upheld? He sends a second Adam, Christ. You are saved by the works of Christ, not by your works. And the works you do now don't make God love you more. You're still loved because of the works of Christ. The works you do now are just a fruit of the fact that God loves you and has saved you. They're not reasons for God to love you more. It's all Christ's works, and we're saved by him. It's against the backdrop of the ongoing covenant of works that gives us understanding about what Christ has done for us. The first Adam, created under the covenant of works, failed. The second Adam said so wonderfully in our confession of faith, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that he may, they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are, that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. That's, that's the gospel message. Dead in our transgressions and sins. But God made us alive together with Christ. So God's righteous standards are not violated because we are in Christ. And he accepts Christ and accepts you who are united to Christ because you believe on Jesus. You rest on Christ. You depend on Christ. You believe on him. You have faith in him. The foundation for understanding this comes to us in Genesis chapter 2 now. Later, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, he said, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and free gift of the, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many, us here gathered. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, praise God, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. God displayed in this part of chapter 2 and as it unfolds into chapter 3, God displayed the place and the purpose of people 
when he established the Garden of Eden. And there we see this purpose or this great calling of work that we have. And we also see the very basis for why Jesus came and lived and died as he did for us. And we give praise to him for what he has revealed here. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for uh, the cogent message, the very clear explanation of your purpose for creating us. Lord, we rely solely on Christ to have relationship with you, to understand your word. For the ministry of your spirit, we are grateful. Lord, I do, in light of what we have read, pray for my brothers and sisters. Maybe some have just tough labor that they face this week in their homes or in their jobs or wherever it is you're calling them to do work. Pray that you give them encouragement in that, that they would be able to see the value, the significance, the worth of it because of your ordaining it. Lord, at the same time, this side of the fall, it's difficult, it's challenging, so I pray for your special grace to be poured upon everyone here, especially those facing difficulties with their labors this week. And Lord, we thank you for the clarity of the gospel and how obvious our desperate situation is failing to obey you perfectly. But Lord, our rest is not in our works. They are filthy rags. Our rest is in the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. I pray for all here gathered to be assured of their salvation because it rests solely in Jesus, whom you love and will never cast off. And in like manner, you love us and will never cast us off. I thank you for this. I praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.